0: and welcome to the fifth edition of the HOW Shift Behavioural Science Team podcast. I'm Katie Irving and I'm joined today by a very special guest whose voice you haven't heard on the podcast before, it's Kieran.
1: Hi, yeah, my name's Kieran and I'm part of the HRW Shift team and I have a background in health psychology from the University of Nottingham and I'm excited to be part of the podcast.
0: And we also have joining us on the line, live from New York City. So apologies if we get a lot of transatlantic static or rogue uh, New York City background noise. We have the lovely Allie Dautrich.
2: Hi, everyone. Excited to be back and joining again, bringing that U.S. and New York City perspective as well as the behavioral econ perspective to these conversations. Today, what we want to talk about and focus on is this idea of choice architecture. And it's been one of our favorite topics as we work through healthcare and we think about all these dynamics between healthcare professionals and their patients or just the different scenes that all our consumers are going through. Um, so I think Karen's going to start us off with just a little background and definition on what we mean when we're talking about choice architecture
1: yeah so this term was coined by Thaler and Sunstein in 2008 and it refers to the practice of influencing choice by organizing the context in which people make decisions
0: and I love this terminology I think part of the strength of choice architecture is in its name and how well that describes what is happening so They talked about this in their seminal book, Nudge, for which Richard Thaler actually won the Nobel Prize. Well, that and his subsequent practical work uh, actually won the Nobel Prize in 2017. But they liken choice architecture to actual building architecture in that the structure of the space in which people are operating affects the way that they move. So if you're in a building where you have to pass by the lifts before you, or the elevators for the U.S. audience, before you get to the stairs, you're more likely to take the lifts or the elevators versus he gives the example of a building where he worked actually with several of his colleagues where he always passed a beautiful open stairwell before he got to the elevator. So he was much more inclined to take the stairs between the floors, because they were the first thing he came to, they were really inviting looking. And so they encouraged him to take the stairs more often. So although his inclination is always to try and get more exercise, always take the stairs, it wasn't until he was in a space that really nudged him towards that choice that he was more consistently taking the decisions he was looking for. And we'll give some examples of this and then we can maybe go on to talk about why this tendency exists, why it's actually useful, why it's sometimes not useful, and how we can take better account of it in the way that we consider human behaviour and market research. So maybe starting with a few examples, I know Kieran, you've had one.
1: Yeah, so quite a frequently mentioned example is how food is displayed in cafeterias, So whereby offering healthy food choices at the beginning of the line or at eye level kind of contributes to um, people making healthy choices whereas having more um, unhealthy choices at the end of the line kind of enables you to kind of pick that last Mm -hmm. and go for that healthier choice more often.
0: I think we've all experienced that (laughs) in a salad bar cafeteria line if you Mm -hmm. have salad first you put salad on your plate. And it takes up physical space on your plate. And then there's less room for less healthy options. Mm-hmm. And it can really affect what you choose. And similarly in the supermarket, that's why they often yeah. have the fruit and veg as the mm-hmm. first thing you come across <laughs> because it helps you make kind of healthier choices.
2: I also wonder, too, I mean, I know this isn't a visual thing, but there's a hype disparity between me and Katie, for sure, maybe Kieran's in the middle, and so also thinking about, like, physically where something is put. I know that's something that's come up in grocery stores, or we've heard a lot of examples of putting the sugary cereals at kids' eye level, so that that encouraged them to, you know, pick it up and ask their parents to buy it. And so I also think that that has an element, too, of, you know, just physically where all things are vertically down the line, and it all it all plays a role in just this chart choice architecture and settings.
0: That's a great point as well, Ellie, that brings up something that often comes up when we talk about choice architecture and was inherent in Thaler and Sunstein's definition of it, but is really important, particularly when we think about the role of choice architecture. So it's not actually taking any choices away from people, which is why I think people don't like Sugary cereals at kids' eye level um, is because it's nudging them possibly towards sugary choices. But the important thing there is that you haven't actually changed what they have access to. So the kids and the parents still have the full range of cereals at their disposal. So you're not outlawing sugary cereals. You know, you're not legislating or limiting the choice environment. You're just, it's the way that they're structured, it's the way they're presented, it's the order, it's the Um, Presentation that changes
2: definitely, and I think that plays a lot into some other behavioral theories we've talked about before, and especially defaults. So status quo or what people's habits are, and really thinking about the way that these different environments and the way that choice architecture can impact, you know, what is perceived as or what becomes that easiest path. So, for example, because I know that that was a lot of terms, we're just thinking about what becomes the easiest option. A classic situation is the idea of organ donations. And there was a big study done by Johnson and Goldstein, I think it was, who, they went through and evaluated the framing and the setup of all these organ donation questions, whether it was an opt-in situation or it was an opt-out policy. So in countries like Denmark and the Netherlands and the UK, you had to opt in and check a box to physically say you would like to be an organ donor, as opposed to other countries, Belgium, France, and Poland, and many others, it was opt out instead. So you have to check a box to say you would not like to do that. So effectively, what happened is they saw a huge difference in the way that people opted in and opted out the majority, vast majority, just tended to go with what didn't require that extra step. And so the entire setup, the entire framing, the way that the choice architecture was set up, had a huge influence on the number of people and the proportion of people who were organ donors in those different countries. And to Katie's point, I think it's really interesting. You're not limiting choice. You're not saying you're not removing a choice here. But what you need to think about is there There always is some path of what's easiest, and the question is, you know, what is that easiest thing, or what ways can you set up uh, different environments to keep that in mind and consider that?
0: Yeah, and that's a great example of a situation where pretty demonstrably the research has shown that people's intention is to donate their organs. You know, if you survey people, they say that they would like to. But what was limiting uptake was the hassle of having to fill in the form. So creating environments where you make it easier for people to make the choices that they want to make mm-hmm. for their own health and well-being is a lot of how this is applied, particularly in a public policy context ac- across the world. But in the UK Behavioral Insights team, that's part of the work that Richard Thaler won his Nobel Prize for. is thinking of ways that they can help support people to do important effective health behaviors like preventative medicine, organ donation, um, saving for retirement, buying life insurance, the kinds of things that actually if you just leave the free market to be as it is and there's no deliberate choice architecture to structure the choices in a way that make it clearer for people or easier for people that you can really easily end up in a situation where people don't don't take any action or take the wrong actions because they don't know what the best option is to take. Another one that is a great example of a type of choice architecture is the decoy effect. And this is one of my favorites because it's really prevalent. And once you start to know about it, you can really recognize when it's being deployed either accidentally or on purpose. So the decoy effect is kind of named after like hunting decoys. And the example that I often give is like when you go to um, cinema, when you go to the movie theater and you're looking to buy popcorn, they often sell, you know, the small popcorn for like four pounds, the medium for seven pounds, and then large for eight pounds 50 or something like that. In that instance, the medium popcorn isn't actually there to be purchased. It's there to make the large popcorn look like a really good deal and to kind of steer people towards the large popcorn. And the uh, newspaper magazine, The Economist, did a really effective version of this with their online and print subscriptions where they um, gave they gave two experimental conditions. In one, they said um, you can have either the online subscription or the online and print subscription. Um, you know, the online was £100 and the online in print was 150 Or they said, um, you can have online for 100 um, online or paper only for 150 or online and print for 150 So all that did was make the online and print look like a really good deal. Obviously, they didn't sell any of print only because that looked like a terrible deal. But mm-hmm. the purpose of that wasn't there to sell that particular subscription, it was just to make the other subscription look like a good deal. So it's just one of those conditions where when that decoy is present, it really makes the other deal look more salient, more powerful, more attractive, and make people more likely to select it. I don't know if there are any other examples that you guys would like to talk about in terms of choice architecture in practice. I mean, there's certainly some examples from work we've done
1: there's one it's not so much to do with the work that we've done but just more of a general one Mm -hmm. is in terms of cigarettes and Mm -hmm. where that is placed in a shop for example now it's like a law that it has to be hidden from view making it harder for people to kind of see it and decide they want to buy a pack of cigarettes so it's to your point earlier katie that you said it's not about taking it away from people but it's just making it a bit harder for them Mm -hmm. to see so the architects are kind of yeah steering how people make
0: their choices i guess yeah and ali was making the point before we started recording so i don't know if you want to take this opportunity to make the point on the recording.
2: Absolutely. Thinking about all these different examples that we've been going through, I think it's just really important to consider the fact that whether or not we are cognizant of choice architecture, it's something that is influencing our different perceptions and our different ways of making decisions. So what this whole field aims to study and aims to explain and give us a language to talk about the ways that different environments have impact on consumers or HCPs. And that's something that we continue to look at because whether or not you're
0: cognizant
2: of it or not, it's something that is having an
0: influence in this space. Absolutely, well put. It's interesting as well, I think that having the language to talk about choice architecture, as I was kind of saying at the beginning, being able to have a term that we can pin on this tendency of the way options are presented in steering the choices that people subsequently make can be really really powerful for us as mar- certainly us as market researchers to take account of because inadvertently we are choice architects we're always coming into a situation looking for how people actually behave but if we're asking direct questions we are setting up a sequence we are setting up options we are we need to be very cognizant of the fact that there is a potential that we are building those options in a way that is steering people and try and avoid that in as much as possible. Um, and we'll talk go on to talk a little bit about some of the things we can be cognizant of. But I think knowing about choice architecture is also often really powerful for our clients in thinking about how people respond to their products, to the advice from healthcare professionals, from the, the way that they respond to uh, messages that brands are putting out there. And in particular, I can think of a lot of clients for whom the understanding of how healthcare professionals are doing exactly like Ali was saying, that inadvertently becoming choice architects are inadvertently creating choice architecture. Knowing that healthcare professionals are doing that inadvertently, usually, they're usually not intentionally or not maliciously, certainly creating choice architecture that steers patients away from or towards particular options. But they are often creating choice architecture and the ways in which they do that and the types of choices that they're building and how those create predictable responses can be so powerful for our clients. So knowing that, again, they're trying to perhaps facilitate ease for their patients, ease of understanding, but they might reduce a whole set of complicated products down to, you know, here it's basically between these two classes. Okay, so pick between these classes and then we'll go into the details of the product. Well, that's, you know, creating stages of choice rather than presenting literally all of the options, again, to make it easier for their patients. But the fact that they're doing that is choice architecture and knowing, that that's the case can be really powerful. And similarly in in brand areas where there are a lot of brands in a particular class, knowing how that can sometimes create the decoy effect or the perception of guidelines as defaults can be really powerful in helping people get a better grasp of why their customers are behaving the way that they are, why they're responding the way that they are to the environment that's being created.
2: Yeah, that's a really good point, too, Katie, in the way that maybe some healthcare professionals or maybe other choice architects are inadvertently are not even realizing the way that they're trying to make things easier for other people. Uh, recently, I've come across, across a lot of research on this idea of tyranny of small decisions, um, which I think we've talked about a little bit, but I found really fascinating. And basically, it boils down the way that people keep chunking those bigger decisions into tinier and tinier pieces. But exactly like you talked about with your popcorn example, if you keep breaking things down into these tiny choices and you're not thinking of the bigger picture or you're not thinking of the wider context, every time you're making those decisions, you might keep buying that large popcorn instead of that small popcorn because of the way things are framed in that smaller subset, and over time, it ends up with a much less satisfying or satisfactory outcome uh, for the person who's making those decisions. And so really thinking about the ways that we can even combat situations like that to really help people think about those long-term goals, think about their their weight, and maybe better ways to build a certain choice architecture where you can have that fuller picture. Uh, without overwhelming people
0: yeah that's really well put and I mean that brings together a lot of great threads from a lot of things we've talked about on this podcast and (laughs) and outside of the podcast uh, in the shift unit as well thinking about how we can apply this for market research. Thinking
2: about having a background in experimental design and question framing and all of that, this is something that I'm really passionate about. And I think when we review different questionnaires or we're reviewing different materials as we're gearing up for a study, it's really important, I think, to think of ourselves as choice architects as we're creating all of these artificial environments. So even before you get to the analysis stage and before you're diving in and teasing out the findings, it's really important to remember that you're in your framing of questions, you're not biasing people that something as simple as randomizing options to make sure that you're giving that variety or giving that balance. Um, I think all plays a role in this and just continuing to remember. That everyone involved, this this is an artificial kind of environment, but at base and like we're doing at HRW, you're trying to access that reality. So, how do you um, consider these different biases? How do you randomize? How do you offer gallery exercises or resonance interviews in the short term and the long term to kind of you know, work through that balance and keep things as mimicking reality as much as possible.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you also referenced when we were talking just before we started recording about things like honesty clauses.
2: Yeah, I, I think that's something that was really unique before I came to HRW. Um, it felt like there was always kind of a facade when you're going into a market research interview where you, you shy away or there's the tendency or the ask that you shy away from the fact that you're creating these artificial environments when in reality and what we've seen in other research, a better way to actually get professionals to buy in and to get more accurate results is to either ask them to be just making that statement to be more open and honest with your answers, they will be more open and honest with their answers, or at least try to reflect realities as much as possible. Also just when you're setting up and when you're framing different exercises or creative tasks, being more clear on what the intention is and what you're trying to get out of it. I, we've seen a huge difference in the way that especially physicians respond, I think. And Katie or Kieran also feel free to jump in with examples. But I've seen a huge difference with, you know, physicians sitting back with their arms crossed if, you're, if you don't start and properly frame and preface like what you're about to ask them to do and give them that reason for why you're asking them to do it to really get the depth and, of reactions and insights that you're looking for.
1: Yeah, I guess it's about setting up that context for them and just getting them to open up a bit more and not so much as like steer the conversation, but just, yeah, getting their honest opinions to come out more than they would normally perhaps do so.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think also in our analysis, being aware, well, like you say, Ellie, in our design of questionnaires and in our analysis, being aware of choice architecture and the tendency can be really powerful. So I'm thinking in particular of a questionnaire that we were involved with that was on a particular type of vaccine and they wanted to know whether people had received it. But in the way that they designed the list of potential vaccines that they could select from, there were like 18 different types. I'm exaggerating. There were (laughs) four different types of this particular disease that it vaccinated against. So it would be pretty evident to a person reading this that there was some degree of interest in this particular disease Mm -hmm. because there were so many of them in the questionnaire. So in the way we design questionnaires, we can try and be cognizant of those so that we don't inadvertently make something you know, really attention grabbing, really salient to respondents and think about it as well in our analysis and own up to it, recognize when we've accidentally created choice architecture or when the environment itself is structured in such a way that it creates undue focus on particular options Mm -hmm. that we need to kind of downweight in our analysis because it's just coming out more because it's more prevalent or more accessible in the way that we interpret those responses, that we take account of that choice architecture. As well, thinking about your point, Ellie, on the way that choices are presented and honesty clauses. I think a really important thing when we think about choice architecture from a market research perspective, as well as from a marketing perspective and what we advise clients to do, this is where the ethics of being an ethical market researcher is so important. And having ethical conduct is really critical because knowing that The way you structure choices can drive people towards particular choices is really important to acknowledge, and it's really important to use this power for good and not evil. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Because it is something, obviously, that people can use to increase the. awareness of the increase, the availability of particular options. And it's very easy for market research surveys to be designed in such a way that they overstate the awareness or the keenness of people to adopt a particular product or a particular behavior. And so it's so important that we are aware that we are being choice architects when we writing market research surveys and discussion guides and make sure that we are trying to avoid introducing those biases and creating an artificial world, like you say, Ellie, that we are, you know, really living true to the HOW model and accessing reality rather mm-hmm. than creating an artificial choice architecture
2: absolutely katie and i think it's no surprise that this is one of those terms that's been so grabbed onto and latched on in the policy world because it does have those wide-ranging implications just the wide variety of research that has come out just shows what an impact this different framing and choice setting and environment really can have on individual decision making
0: well As always, it's such a delight to talk with you guys and to say a shout out to all the fellow choice architects out there. So it's goodbye from me. Bye from me. Bye from me too. And over the summer, we're hoping to have a podcast series about the role of behavioral science in creating, assessing. And, and assessing engagement with digital tech, so particular apps and digital behavior change intervention. So stay tuned for more news from the HRW Shift team, and it's a bye for now.